Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome back to Story Collider's Stories of COVID-19. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this is part one of episode five on the theme of connections. Six months ago, I watched my little sister graduate college over Zoom. Instead of seeing her walk across the stage, I waited with bated breath for over an hour for her senior photo to be flashed up on a screen for a total of four seconds and cheered alone in my kitchen, even though nobody could hear me. Believe it or not, I found this a little unsatisfying. This year has been full of moments like this, watching life events from graduations to weddings to funerals on screens, struggling to make that emotional connection with our loved ones from a distance. In this episode, we'll hear about the ways our storytellers found to connect despite everything. In part one of this episode, we'll hear from one of those storytellers, And then we'll talk to neuroscientist Daniela Schiller about her research into social interaction during COVID-19. Our first story is from computational biologist C. Brandon Ogbonu. It was recorded at his home in New Haven, Connecticut. By April of 2020, I had decided that I'd had enough, that it was time to get the hell up out of here. And by here, I didn't mean my block or my city, didn't even mean the country. I'm talking galaxy. For real. To do so, all I needed was a warp cell to fuel my hyperdrive. However, to get a warp cell, I needed antimatter. And to get antimatter, I needed 25 parts of chromatic metal and 20 parts of condensed carbon. Simple enough, but in this solar system, I couldn't find any damn condensed carbon. So here I was, moving from planet to planet, trying to scrounge up what I needed for the antimatter. It was my ticket to new adventures. Navigating the universe wasn't my only challenge, however. I was trying to leave the galaxy while talking to a couple of dozen strangers into a gaming headset. That's right. I was live Twitch streaming a fancy 3D space exploration game called No Man's Sky and was answering questions about COVID. It was my way of engaging the public, reaching an audience who might not have an opportunity to talk to a scientist who studies epidemics. Most of the questions I received were pretty good. How long until we get a vaccine? Can I get SARS-CoV-2 from my Amazon packages? Why do black and brown people seem they get it more in the United States? But of course, I got these types of questions. Well, I don't want to believe this 5G thing, but yo, is there any truth to it? Or blah, 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 Bill Gates, microchips, population control, COVID, blah, 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 blah. 
30 minutes or so into this Twitch channel chat, while still playing the game, I had found a planet in the solar system with condensed carbon. I mined it in abundance and exited the atmosphere en route to hyperdriving my way out of the galaxy. I was in a groove, answering questions and exploring the universe. Just as I was about to craft the antimatter and get the hell up out of here, however, I heard an announcement from the television speakers. Hostile ships detected. Three pirate ships had identified valuable cargo on my ship and were attacking me. I tried to keep cool during the onslaught, but the chat participants, the ones who I was talking COVID with, noticed the challenge, probably because of the shift in my demeanor. You okay, bro? Yo, you need to use your ion cannons. Months into the COVID pandemic, I was embroiled in a video game space dogfight while Twitch streaming with strangers, answering science questions, trying to remain cool and calm. Ooh, the sensory overload, the responsibility overload, and the associated exhaustion. Something about the feeling was very familiar and yet new. And then I remembered. It reminded me of what life was like before COVID had flattened all of our worlds, turned three dimensions into two. In this new 2D world, we play bingo on a screen. I talk with colleagues about the identifiability problem and how it complicates our use of mathematical bottles on a screen. And then there's the people themselves. The curves of faces, gone. The curves of bodies, gone. The curves of voices gone. I mean, when I used to make jokes at work, I could see the joke fill the air, reach different ears at different times, and spread. Now my humor isn't so contagious. To live with COVID is to live in two dimensions. Like Super Mario Brothers, we pretty much only have a jump button and a left and right movement on a directional pad. There's no antimatter. No condensed carbon, no space pirates. Towards the end of that Twitch stream, three old friends showed up, Khalil, Selene, and Zora. We go back 15 years or so. And since that Twitch stream, I stayed kept in touch with the three of them and talked to them relatively often. I talk to Khalil all the time now, more often than before, and not just Tuesday at 10 p.m. when we used to talk about science fiction and maybe how we should start blogging together one day. Now I talk to him on a 5 p.m. jog, over a 9 p.m. cigar, before a 10 a.m. Zoom meeting with a potential collaborator. In our new 2D reality, I noticed that Khalil is as much of a morning person as I am. And I've learned that his job's historical connection to the eugenics movement is eating him inside. For 20 years, we talked and laughed and about meaningful things, but COVID made me realize I didn't know him all that much. Then there's Selim. Since COVID, I've talked to Selim half a dozen times. 
Now he's interested in starting a hand sanitizer company. When we spoke, he was able to articulate, in a way that only he can, the ins and outs of how hand sanitizer is made, the type of ethanol that is used by some brands, and how he aims to disrupt it, or at least get a black share of it. In our new 2D reality, I was reminded how Salim is the roommate who is much smarter than I am at everything, even science. I don't know what Salim's romantic life is like now these days, but I can tell that dude definitely still got it with the ladies, I'm sure. But in June, after talking to him several times, I noticed that he has a lisp. An actual, real lisp. In college, I've watched this dude consensually and delicately talk the crown off the Queen of England. And 20 years later, I realize he did it all with a goddamn lisp. Before COVID, it had been 15 years since I talked to Salim in any kind of detail, back when he was my best friend in the world. In the last few months, I've Skyped with Zora. She now lives in New Zealand. When we Skype, we blame each other for spotty Wi-Fi, but we laugh just like old times. Over conference calls, I've learned that her eight-year-old son plays guitar in a boy band called The Shrugs. I also learned that they paint Dungeons and Dragons figurines together on weekends. She knew I would appreciate this because, well, I introduced her to Dungeons and Dragons 20 years ago. Before COVID, it had been a decade since I had been walked so thoroughly through her life. This despite the fact that she is the person whose patience, love, and understanding really helped to create some of the best parts of me. She's since picked up a weird hybrid European New Zealand accent. Gone is the airy, educated Brooklyn girl that I liked. And behind a MacBook screen, I concluded that, like many women of African descent, she ages on a geological time scale. So yeah, she looks the same, but her eyes have changed, I now notice. There's lots of pain behind them, and some of it, I gather, I'm responsible for. My COVID-inspired 2D world didn't reintroduce me to three of the most important people I've ever known. It introduced me to them. With no CGI or 3D graphics, life is simple. It's just colors and pixels, main characters and bosses, prizes and levels, and in many ways, it can be just as meaningful. To Khalil, I recently said, bruh, they should just end the Detroit Lions. That's how I told them I loved them. To Salim, I recently said, hey man, Dope new business idea. Brilliant as always. That's how I told him I appreciated him. To Zora, I said, Hey, I'm really sorry for anything I ever did to hurt you. Now, apologies way after the fact can be selfish, but I thought she would understand. To the Detroit Lions joke, Khalil didn't respond at all. His way of saying, 
I love you too, man. Salim responded to my text with the thumbs up reaction emoji. His way of saying, we grew apart for some reasons, and yet we didn't at all. Glad to be talking again. And Zora said that she forgave me. Stop being ridiculous, Brandon. You're one of my greatest supporters and best friends. But why are you avoiding my question? You're a geneticist. I asked you if I should get my dog's genome sequenced. A flatter world is a different world. And when it feels like we've been robbed of our extra dimensions, it sucks. But in the COVID world, I've discovered a way to travel further and faster than in my 3D spaceship with no space pirates between me and new adventures. That was C. Brandon Ogbonu. Brandon is a computational biologist at Yale University who studies epidemics and genetics. He's also a contributing writer at Wired Magazine, where he writes at the intersection of science, data, and society. He's also a member of StoryClider's board of directors I'm proud to share. Before we move on to our interview segment, I want to give a quick reminder that you can catch more true personal stories about science at our online live shows. Find out more about that at storyclider.org. You can also find out more about our online storytelling workshops. Signups are now open for January. We offer an intro course every month, and this January, I'm going to be leading an advanced workshop course alongside our producer, Lily B., an amazing Chicago storyteller. This course is almost sold out, so if you're interested, get on it. We're going to dig deep into our stories. I'm so psyched for it. Once again, find out more at storyclider.org. And now feels like a good time to mention that if you're listening to this series thinking that you might also have a story about how the pandemic has affected you in a big or small way, get in touch. You can send your story pitches to stories at storyclider.org, or you can pitch through the form on our website. We're currently working on our next series of COVID-19 stories, and we would love to work with you on yours. Specifically, we're looking for a few different kinds of stories. We're looking for stories from athletes or folks who are involved in sports. We're looking for stories from researchers. And we're also looking for stories from people who have encountered COVID deniers in one way or another. So if you have any of those types of stories, please do get in touch. But also, maybe you have an idea that we haven't thought about yet. (laughs) Definitely still get in touch. Send us your pitch, stories at storyclider.org, or through the form on our website. From the start of the series, I wanted to understand more about how these changes in our communication are affecting us, mentally and emotionally. So I was excited to discuss this with neuroscientist Daniela Schiller, who's a great friend of Story Collider and has told several wonderful stories on our podcast before. Daniela is a neuroscientist who leads the Effective Neuroscience Lab at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. Daniela, thank you for being here today, virtually. Hi. It's great to be here. So uh, you are a neuroscientist who studies, among other things, memory, fear, anxiety, and social communication. Yes. I was wondering if we could start out today talking about how our brains are hardwired for communication. 
So you can approach it in different, uh, from different perspectives. One is the emotional, affective perspective, which is our brains are very tuned to identify and detect uh, important stimuli in the environment uh, that are important for survival. Uh, for example, a predator is kind of a classic example, or anything that could uh, threaten your survival or enhance it. Um, so moving from um, stimuli in the environment that could affect our survival to people is very natural. People can be predators. Uh, people are important for reproductive uh, actions and uh, for support and so forth. So if you look at it through the lens of emotional processing, um, it's interesting to see how the brain is processing other people and information about the social environment as important for survival. So the same uh, mechanisms of learning, memory, attention would be applied to social interactions. And um, another way to look at it is through the lens of navigation in space. Just like you walk around and you need to know your environment, the social world is a world to navigate through. Uh, interactions are dynamic, they have trajectories, they evolve over time, just like you take a walk somewhere. Um, and there, there's a lot of information you have to track uh, and map and find your location within that space and how it's being modified. So we, we took that approach quite literally and created a storyline where you interact with fictional characters uh, and the relationships evolve over time on dimensions of power and affiliation. So it looks like social interactions have a lot of dimensions, but pretty fundamental are dimensions of power and affiliation. Power means hierarchy, dominance, uh, ability to control others, whereas affiliation is uh, physical proximity, uh, physical touch, sharing personal information, trust, uh, love, reproductive bonds, all of these. So these are clusters, these dimensions, and they're pretty fundamental across species, especially for humans. So it's a good start to see how you navigate along these dimensions. And it, it creates a two-dimensional space. And then when you interact with people, you have a power interaction or an affiliation interaction, uh, the relationships are the points where the... The interactions are the points where the relationship will evolve. And that's a really important point because it's one of the major things that changed now in the pandemic. Mm. Um, because we don't have personal interactions as much or hardly at all. And uh, when you do online interactions, the whole landscape of information changes completely. It's actually a lot of a burden on cognition. Because, for example, when you do a Zoom meeting, the person is in another physical space, but you don't see it, you don't feel it, you have kind of pretty rough assessment of where the person, person is, or you could even forget. Um, so your brain works much harder to localize that person in physical space, as well as in a social space. Uh, because your know, body, uh, posture, and, and signs uh, are less... Uh, evident, um, you know, through a camera in a particular location, sometimes the person is looking up, down, you know, depending on where the camera is localized. So that puts you in a whole different arena 
Yeah, I was thinking about that as you describe these two dimensions of power and affiliation. You talk about one of the factors of in affiliation as being proximity. I was wondering how do we how do we make those judgments in terms of power and affiliation when we're communicating this way? So in physical space, it's it's quite straightforward, right? It's like you have to be really close and touch. Uh, in social space, it's interesting. So it would have different dimensions. One would be, for example, sharing private information. Hmm. Let's say, you know, I want to tell you something uh, pretty private and uh, you kind of, I don't know, I'm busy with my iPhone now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that in this in this sense, you kind of rejected an affiliation, a possible um, progress in affiliation. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so sharing and listening of private information and physical touch, uh, I believe, are the main characteristics of affiliation in social relationships. And now, obviously, most of us don't have physical touch. Yes, no physical touch. And also sharing uh, private information, uh, feeling trust, uh, are quite difficult uh, in Zoom uh, or, or other online platforms. And I think there's also a big difference between when you use a video, so at least uh, you have some visual information and uh, you sort of expose yourself and the other person. But online is much worse. Uh, online is uh, a, lot of, a lot of it, I guess, I don't know, 90%, I can't really quantify, but a lot <laughs> is uh, kind of between you and yourself, really. Mm. Um, because you post something and then there may or may not be a reaction that you read in your own mind, in your own voice. Um, so uh, a lot of it happens between you and yourself. Uh, it's very close to just a dialogue within your head. Um, and that's very isolating. It relies on much less real social information. Um, and uh, any progress in their relationship is almost like pseudo-progress because it's a lot of what you assume about their relationship, about what you read, how you read it, in what context. Uh, that makes relationships uh, very, very hard to understand and to develop. Oh, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you think will be the long-term impacts on our brains as a result of this kind of communication? Um, I think a lot of it already happened before the pandemic, which what, what I call pseudo-relationships. Uh, hmm. I think we forget uh, what real relationship is. And, for example, if we read, you have followers and something like that on Twitter or emails or text messages, uh, because uh, we get used to interpreting everything in our own head, we kind of learn to trust it and believe that this really is a relationship. But it could be very different. Uh, you know how people can fight in, over chat, you know, uh, or on email? It's like, why did you even fight? You know, it's like yeah. uh, completely lack of communication. Um, but if we forget, uh, then it will just like uh, many relationships will be doomed or just like uh, slightly fictional. Um, and that's... that's uh, that would be bad news. And I think from what, what we saw from brain research, the fact that the brain is... Um, so actually, what we noticed that was interesting is that there is a part of the brain, particularly the prefrontal cortex, that is 
almost dedicated to process social information. So if you will read about a person, see a person's picture, um, you know, get information, even update the information, the prefrontal cortex would light up uh, crazy. So it will assess your first impressions and how you update the impressions and how you think about other people that are close to you versus further from you. A lot of research have mapped that. But when we, did, when, when we manipulated the interaction itself, we actually had an interaction. So it was a fictional character, but in a storyline. So you kind of embedded yourself in a story, you were the protagonist, and then you really interacted and you chose how to interact, um, how to respond and uh, how to accept information. So that information, that dynamic involvement of the relationship were not related to the prefrontal cortex because it wasn't just passive processing of information. It was actually tracked in a region that track physical navigation when you walk around. Um, so when you moved in the social relationship, this is where the hippocampus uh, played a role. So what it tells you is that um, relationship evolved through actual interactions. If there isn't an actual interaction, there wouldn't be any trajectory formed or anything to track like walking in physical space. I guess the difference is if you're uh, just viewing images of the world, uh, you know, go on Google Maps, uh, you wouldn't, your hippocampus wouldn't really track how you move in space. But if you actually go to other countries and, and walk around, then your hippocampus will track where you are in physical space. That would be the difference. Interesting. Yeah, so we're literally navigating a social space in our minds. Um, that's how it seems. You know, uh, there's research pointing in that direction, uh, that these navigation tools that we have are not used only for physical space, but also to other manner of spaces. So not only social, it can be olfactory space, it can be sound space, it can be just arbitrary space, just for the purpose of a specific task that is on any arbitrary dimension. As long as you have information to organize, along these continuous dimensions, then it will be an act of navigation or as if you create a map. And a map doesn't have to be necessarily just physical. And social would be one case of that. So these are theories that uh, actually were uh, developed many decades ago, uh, like the cognitive map theory by Edward Tolman in uh, 1948. Uh, and since then, there has been a lot of research, but only now in recent years, we really applied to all these other dimensions. It's mostly flourished in the physical domain. So viewing social navigation in, through these lenses really opens up really exciting uh, um, lines of research, both at the psychological level and the actual brain Im implementation level. Well, earlier, you mentioned that the kind of communication that we're doing right now throughout the pandemic, it creates a burden on cognition. Um, how does that affect us? Is that the reason why we're so tired after a day of Zoom meetings? I think so, yeah. That's uh, it's an hypothesis, not based on empirical research, but uh, <laughs> uh, some researchers uh, think that this, this might be the case because you really have a load in terms of figuring out. Because... You know, anyway, social interactions are guesswork. Um, it's not like viewing 
let's say, a sculpture in a museum, like you see it, you can feel it, you have a lot of sensory information, but social interactions are mostly what you would say latent, like kind of hidden behind your body, in your brain. So when we interact, we, there's a lot of figuring out to do based on these cues, based on what you say, how you say it, your facial expressions, your body posture, and so forth. So add to that the Zoom situation where I don't even know, I don't see most of your body, you know, usually your upper part. <laughs> and I don't really know uh, where you are. Um, like I had a friend that uh, she's in New York and then she moved to another city. And I just, I kept forgetting where she was. I kept <laughs> thinking she's like kind of, uh, you know, a few buildings away and, uh, for several months. It was horrible. So... Um, yeah, it's been this kind of unsettling feeling of uh, geography and time sort of becoming amorphous yes. <laughs> during the pandemic. Yes, yes. So the yeah, so the guesswork is just just becomes uh, much more difficult. Right, that makes sense. So knowing what you know about communication, how it affects our brains, and vice versa, what do you suggest in terms of? strategies for how we can cope during this time? Um, I always think that knowledge helps to monitor your uh, hmm. reactions uh, and exhaustion, for example. So if you know what you're going through when you're Zooming all day, uh, I think it will help. It's like, oh, I, I know. It's like, I just don't know where the person is. I missed the, the touch, you know, or uh, I have so little information and also the relationships are a bit stuck in a way because there aren't a lot of opportunities to, you know, meet and kind of chat and have a drink and all that. Uh, it's just all uh, stalled down. I think if you know that, uh, it will help you cope. Uh, kind of just saying to yourself, yeah, I see what's going on. It's going to get better. Um, I'm, not ex I'm exhausted for a reason. I feel lonely for a reason. I'm stressed for a reason. Mm then uh, I think that helps. But I think especially, uh, which, that's more elusive to, to really know what a relationship is and to understand that the online crowd is mostly imaginary, uh, mostly interpreted in our head, <laughs> and, and even one-on-one -on -one interaction, but when they're all in, written online, it's just most of it is in our head. Really, and uh, it, it's it's very easy to forget because when you assume something, you're supposed to assume that there are many other options. And so, why wouldn't you do that? You know, <laughs> you have a tendency to trust your judgments. So, yeah, of course, that's what it is. But I think if you remember that there could be many other interpretations, and you're prone to mistakes or misinterpretations just because we have so little information. So I wouldn't put a lot of trust in our own judgment and in our perception of relationships when they happen purely online. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like right now communicating as we are, well, all communication sort of has to be very intentional, right? We don't kind of run into each other by accident at a bar or coffee shop or anything like that. All communication is planned and scheduled with a Zoom link. Yeah. And so I do think there is um, something, something about that that causes us to feel lonely. If people aren't reaching out to us all the time, there's a loneliness about that. 
Yeah. I think what you recommend in terms of being aware of things, just being aware of how that's affecting us, how we're interpreting the information around us and how it might not be correct. That's really great advice. Thank you so much, Daniela, for making time to chat with us about the brain today. Sure. Happy to do that. StoryGlider is so grateful to Daniela for sharing her knowledge and to Brandon for sharing his story. StoryGlider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast series is produced by me, Aaron Barker, with assistance from StoryGlider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our operations manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our new interim executive director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. The story featured in the first part of this episode was produced by Nissa Greenberg. The theme music is by Eva Gertz of the Fulton Street Music Group. Stay tuned for two more stories in part two of Connections on Monday. Until then, this is Story Collider signing off. Stay safe, wash your hands, wear a mask, love each other. Thanks for listening.